Hi, everybody. I'm Chick Hernandez. You don't know me, but maybe you will. Just listen to Pro Sports Podcasters. <laughs> Hold on a second. Why what? do you think they don't know you? I don't know. You want, you want Emmy Awards and stuff. I know. I know. Oh, here, here, you want one? Okay, here's one. Here, here, here's one. Here's one. Hi, everybody. I'm Chick Hernandez, multi-Emmy Award winner. Do you care? I don't know. I don't care. It was great. You're listening to Pro Sports Podcasters. There, that one's more like it. We are the Pro Sports Podcasters, where no sport is left behind. It's time for another episode of the Pro Sports Podcasters with your hosts, Nee Wallace-Bruce, Colbert Durand, and Justin Williams. On this podcast, we have guests from all over the world covering every sport from artistic gymnastics to weightlifting. We are something for every sports fan on PSP. Whether your interests are the athletes playing the game, the coaches, or the media, we've got you covered. Fun and informative, honest and engaging. You won't want to miss a single episode. So let's kick this off. Welcome back to the Pro Sports Podcast. I'm your co-host, Mr. Neil Wallace-Bruce, and I'm joined by the one and only Colby Durand, a.k.a. Kobe. Kobe, how you doing? I'm good, buddy. I'm good. Actually, I've been really getting into an Australian TV show lately. I generally hate Australian television, but this one I found is is actually quite good. I was surprised. Okay. And why do you like it? Uh, good characters. Good characters. Decent writing. It's mm-hmm. it's an easy show to like, honestly, and most Australian shows aren't. So I, I, was, I was pleasantly surprised, and I thought I'd share that with you, being that's, you know, your home base. You're not talking about the Australian test tour of India, are you? No, 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 no. This is an actual <laughs> show. It's uh, it's okay. called Five Bedrooms or whatever, and it's uh, a little sitcom, basically. I have heard that, and I have heard people say good things about it. Yeah, I was surprised. A pleasant surprise is always a good thing, and I've also heard good things about our upcoming guest. He is the man who is writer and commentator on all things Atlanta sports. He's the author of The Real Hank Aaron, and you would have seen him on ESPN MSNBC and CNN. It is the one and only Terrence Moore. Terrence, how's things? Oh, it's great. I think it would be better if I was in Toronto, but hey, I, I'll, I'll make do here in Atlanta, you know. It is snowing right now. Does that change your outlook? It Actually, it does. I'm happy to be here in Atlanta. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, come to think of it, yeah, I love Atlanta. <laughs> no, I think things will get better in a couple of months. But, um, Terrence, tell us a little bit about how you came to be the person you are today. Well, you, you know, it, it goes back to high school, really. And uh, my dad was an AT&T supervisor. He used to get transferred around the Midwest. Uh, grew up in South Bend, Indiana, a little university there called University of Notre Dame. He got transferred to Cincinnati and then to Chicago. So we ended up in Milwaukee. I went to like three different high schools in three different years. And I bring that up because... My uh, junior year in high school, uh, that would have been 1972, actually my sophomore year. If somebody asked me what I wanted to be when I grow up, grew up, I would say a football player or a baseball player. I was pretty prolific at both. But what changed my life, sophomore year, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, my uh, English teacher had the sports editor of the Milwaukee Journal come in and talk to our class about sports writing. And, and from that point on, it's like, that's what I want to be when I grow, grow up. And from that point, I joined the high school newspaper. Didn't even know we had a high school newspaper at the time and became the editor of the high school newspaper. Went to college at Miami, Ohio and Oxford, Ohio, which is the oldest college newspaper west of the Alleghenies. 
in the United States, and I joined that, and I was a uh, I was a Jackie Robinson figure because I was the first black person from my high school newspaper to join that, first black person from my college newspaper to join that, Miami, Ohio, and that was in uh, September of 74, and then uh, graduated May 7th, 1978, a week later, uh, became a full-time writer, just writer at the Cincinnati Enquirer, first black sports columnist in history of the Cincinnati Enquirer, you can see a little theme here, and then worked there for three years, and San Francisco Examiner, five years, first black sports writer history of the San Francisco Examiner, 25 years, Atlanta Journal-Constitution as a sports columnist, columnist, first black sports columnist in history of the South. And it just went on from there and uh, to where I am now, being an internet uh, columnist for Forbes.com, CNN.com, national television, as you just mentioned, ESPN and MSNBC. And then I do a local show here in Atlanta every, Wednesday, every Sunday night on the ABC affiliate. And it all goes back to being in that English class, Mrs. Greasebox English class in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, my sophomore year in the spring of 1972. Wow. Now, that English class was obviously pivotal for, I guess, being a catalyst to getting things started. But how did you keep things going? Because you, you mentioned a number of different cities along the way, and you also mentioned that you'll pretty much blaze a trail. So, that wouldn't have been easy. How, how did you persist in that regard? Oh, it wasn't easy at all. And, and you know, and this all kind of leads into the book, which we'll you know talk about later. But the reason I say it leads into the book, I grew up in a family of Jackie Robinsons. And being a spiritual person, I believe that there's no such thing as coincidence. Everything happens for a reason. And when I look back at my life, I'm 67, I can see how the dots connect all the way through. And it started with my parents. So growing up in South Bend, Indiana, my dad started out as a janitor at, at uh, the telephone company there in uh, South Bend, worked himself up to be uh, the first black supervisor in the history of AT&T in the 60s. My mom was the first black employee in South Bend for something called the Associates a Savings and Loans Company that was na nationally based, but it started there in South Bend, and she became uh, the first black person to work for that. Uh, my brother, my youngest brother, I'm the oldest of three. My youngest brother, Daryl, became the first black baseball player in the history of the uh, University of Wisconsin. That was 1977. And it just went on and on. But growing up in that household and just seeing how my parents handled things being the first, and it wasn't pretty because I grew up in the 60s and we all know about the racial tensions uh, in this country back then. Not so much in South Bend, but when we moved to Cincinnati in 68, which was flirting with being in the South, not the deep South, but kind of like right there in the South. That's when we really start seeing sort of the racism uh, start rearing its ugly head because one of the things my parents did was they always tried to get us in the best school districts. So in the th uh, three years when I went to three different high schools in three different states, it was always a white school. And me and my brothers were always the first black persons there in the school. And that was good and it was bad, and it was ugly. It was all those things. But what it was doing was, it was preparing all of us and just dealing with me for what we would face later being in those situations. And as I mentioned to you, to you earlier, I was the first black person in the history of my high school newspaper, college newspaper, the Cincinnati Enquirer, which started in 1840, San Francisco Examiner. And I, I was the first black person ever to cover a National Football League team on a regular basis the Oakland Raiders for a major newspaper. 
And all those situations involve, uh, again, a, a lot of challenging situations. But the reason I was able to handle those challenging situations, go straight back to my youth, watching my parents, how they survived their Jackie Robinson situations. Love that. No, that's, that's great to hear. And um, yeah, it's it's obviously opened the door up for so many that have come uh, after you. So better tip my cap for that, sir. Well, thank you. Yeah. Now, Terrence, what, what was it about that initial lecture that flipped you from being, well, from wanting to become an athlete to being someone who reports on athletes? You know, and that's a very good question. And, uh, and I think it was partly the uniqueness of it all because it was such a novel idea to me because I never even thought about it. And I always read the sports section, you know, and, uh, and read it pretty closely. But then from that point on, I went from reading the sports section to studying, studying the, the sports section. And that kind of ties into today in a way because uh, I'm a person to do multiple things. Besides the media thing, I'm also a visiting professor of journalism at Georgia State. I was at Miami, Ohio, Miami model for seven years, but I decided to kind of stay closer to home uh, this year. And I bring that up because one of the things I'm always stressing to my students is that when I give them things or even on their own, don't just read, but study. And then the third thing, apply. And that's something I started doing very much automatically back then in the spring of 72 when Bill Dwyer, that was the name of the sports editor, Milwaukee Journal, spoke to us. I immediately went into reading, studying, and applying mode. And that's when I asked my English teacher, I said, well, how can I get involved in this? She said, well, first you got to join the school newspaper, which I didn't know existed. And so I did that. And when I got home, I stopped reading the Milwaukee Journal. I started studying the Milwaukee Journal and then starting applying it. So I think it was more so that. It was like a curiosity factor. And once I started getting involved in it, I started uh, really getting into the subject. Uh, it was something that uh, that became my passion at an early age. Did you play any sports in college? No, no. <laughs> I got a quick story about that. I'm writing a second book that's coming out in in the, uh, in August, by the way. First book, The Real Hank Aaron. This book is, gonna, is called Red Brick Magic, Sean McVay, John Harbaugh, and Miami University's Cradle of Coaches. Uh, Sean McVay, for the people who may not know, is the head coach of the LA Rams. John Harbaugh is the head coach of the Baltimore Ravens. Miami of Ohio, where I graduated from, is the only university that has two current NFL head coaches as graduates, and they both won Super Bowls. And in addition to that, Miami is called the Cradle of Coaches because it's this little college in southern southwestern Ohio that's produced all of these incredible coaches. Uh, you know, Paul Brown, who, who invented literally two NFL teams, the Cleveland Browns, the Cincinnati Bengals, uh, the top coach in the history of my, Michigan football, Bo Schembechler, mm -hmm. top coach in the history of Ohio State, Woody Hayes. You can just go on and on and on. So it's this, it's this famous school for that. But it also, when I went to school there in the – early to mid 70s, it had a prolific football team that went 32 one and one. So my idea was to go to even though I had some scholarship offers to some small colleges around Wisconsin, what have you. I, I love Miami, Ohio. That's where I wanted to go to go to school for so many reasons. So my, my plan was to go there and try out for the football team, 
the first day. And this is the old style football where they can do anything to you on the practice field shy of taking a chainsaw to your leg. <laughs> so I looked at that for one minute and I said, not gonna do that. And so I, right off the bat, I immediately got playing out of my mind. And that's when I really started concentrating uh, just on being a writer. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's but by being a writer, instead of playing one sport, you've you've essentially been able to cover so many different sports. You mentioned that you wrote the book about Hank Aaron. Atlanta is unique because you had Hank. You also had prime time uh, sure. playing two sports there. Who are some of the other personalities that you encountered, not just in Atlanta, but also Cincinnati and the Bay Area on your writing journey? And, and you know, that's going to be part of some of my future books because I have friends of mine who call me the Forrest Gump of sports writers. It's just amazing to me, and I'm getting chills right now thinking about this. Over the 45 years of being a professional sports journalist, some of the people that I've encountered and, and also the events I've been involved in, I'll be reading about something or watching something, and I'll be like, oh, that's right, I was there. <laughs> or I know somebody that was part of that. Just so many names. I mean. I mean, just from the, the cities that I was involved in, like growing up in South Bend, Indiana, University of Notre Dame, uh, Aaron Parsegian, who also went to Miami of Ohio, one of the greatest coaches of all time, very close to him, and Lou Holtz. And, and then uh, and I think of uh, in Cincinnati, uh, Big Red Machine, the greatest baseball team of all time of, of my youth. Matter of fact, that's a future book that I'm um, thinking about doing. Uh, uh, Pete Rose. I know Pete Rose has a bad name in many quarters now because of gambling. I, I, I could tell you many stories, personal stories about me and Pete Rose that uh, that are unbelievable on the positive. I'm a huge Pete Rose fan. I, or uh, then going to San Francisco, working, uh, covering the, the 49ers with Bill Walsh and Joe Montana, these legendary names, and uh, the Oakland Raiders. The, the, I always say the real Oakland Raiders. I, I don't know who these clowns are now, but the ones 45 years ago that had the all these uh, you know, pro, pro players and what have you, I mean, covering them. But if I had to pick one, one of my most striking moments, and there's just so many, so many, I'll just tell you this quick version of my Muhammad Ali story. This was like in the mid-80s, and, and up to that point, I had met just about everybody that I wanted to meet as far as just like on a personal thing, because you know, like I said, I cover all sports and I've covered Olympics, a couple of World Series, Super Bowls, uh, the Indy uh, uh, 500s, major golf tournaments, you name it, I've covered it. But at that point, I had never met Muhammad Ali. And I used to put out feelers to different people I know, I knew who were PR types and said, hey, you know, if you ever can work it where I can have a one-on-one -on -one with Muhammad Ali, let me know. So it's June 18th, 1986. I remember the date because that's the day I met Muhammad Ali. Uh, I'm, here, I'm here in Atlanta. And I get a phone call from well, a publicist friend, and he told me that, that Muhammad Ali was in town, and if I wanted to interview him one-on-one, -on -one, I need to kind of get down to downtown Atlanta in about 20 minutes from where I was. And I thought the guy was kidding me. You know, he said, no, no, no. He said, come on down. So then I said, listen, I have this poster of Muhammad Ali that I've had since I was like 14 years old. And it's, it's the second of uh, the trilogy fights between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. It was fight number two at Madison Square Garden with that Muhammad Ali won. I said, can I bring that and have him sign it? He said, sure, bring it on down. So, so I get down to the downtown hotel, and in all my years of being a sports journalist, at that point, 86, I'm doing quick math, 
I've been what, eight, nine years in the business. I'd, at that point, even at eight or nine years, I'd covered like five Super Bowls, two or three World Series and Olympics. So I really didn't get nervous, you know, covering big events or uh, big people. This time I was nervous. So I'm walking down the hallway and my friend is walking uh, toward me. And he said that he had to go to a last minute meeting. And I'm thinking, oh, geez, there goes that interview. He says, no, no, he's waiting for you. Just go on down into, uh, to the door. The door's open. He's on the phone. When he gets off the phone, you can interview him. I said, okay, great. So I'm, I get into the room. My heart is just like racing. Like, what is this moment going to be like seeing great Muhammad Ali, June 18th, 1986? So I walk in, and he's on the other side of this curtain talking on the phone. And so I, you know, I'm sitting on the couch just, just waiting for this great moment. So he hangs up the phone, and my heart is about to pound out of my chest. He opens up the curtain, and he's standing there totally naked. And he, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh my goodness. And he says, who are you? I'm like, uh, 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 he puts the curse back together. And I'm thinking, what an introduction to Muhammad Ali. So he, so he gets dressed and he comes out to the couch and I got the poster and he's looking at it and I give him a pen. And the thing that's so striking about this, one of the reasons I'm telling the story, his hand is shaking. And I'm thinking, why is his hand shaking? And you're probably way ahead of me. I was one of the first persons who knew that he was getting Parkinson's disease. Wow. I didn't know what it was at the time, but I was just like, well, this is kind of weird. And it took him about, he signed the, the poster. I'm looking at it right now. To Terry, love Muhammad Ali, June 18, 1986. It must have taken him about a minute and a half just to sign that. And uh, he signed it, and then he said he was going to do a magic trick, which he did. And he moved a few feet away from me and, and said, I'm going to levitate which he did off the ground. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. He was off the ground. I got no idea how he did it, but he was <laughs> off the ground. That's my story. Again, I'm sticking to it. Sticking to it. But uh, with that right there, I would have to say, if I had to pick one of my – that would that might have been my all-time favorite moment in 45 years plus as a sports journalist. Amazing. Yeah, I just listened to that. Yeah, that I felt that. That's awesome. Yeah, Terrence, like you said, 45 years plus of sports journalism, you've seen sports journalism change dramatically and the sports themselves, even the geography of sports change dramatically. In your tenure, I mean, we're based in Toronto, so you would have seen the the beginnings of the Toronto Blue Jays, the sure. beginnings of the Toronto Raptors, and now leagues like the NFL playing games in Europe, things have changed dramatically. How have you managed to stay relevant and stay current with all these changes? Well, and that is an excellent question because that's one of the things that I teach to my students all the time. And I've been teaching since 2014, so there's been a constant mantra of mine, not only when it comes to journalism, but when it comes to life. And one of my favorite sayings that I always tell my, my mentees, and I point at them, I say, what's, what's that saying? And they'll repeat it back to me. If you're standing still, you're going backward. I can't tell you how many times in my that I've been in this business where I've had colleagues of mine sitting around complaining about this, that, or the other. I mean, I, I'll tell you, I started in this business when they were still using typewriters. And there's probably a lot of people out there who don't know what a typewriter is. Okay? <laughs> but but that, in the old days, you had to do, you use a typewriter and you dictated stories sometimes. There were times when I had to dictate stories off the top of my head. You know, and, and I look, I tell that to some of my young mentees now, and they look at me like I got two heads, like, yeah, you're, are you crazy? So, I mean, those type of things. 
But but it was a matter of adapting. And uh, the epitome of that was goes along with to answer your question. It's the it was May of two thousand and nine, and I'm sitting in my living room here in Atlanta, outside in the in the, in the suburbs, feeling sorry for myself because I noticed that newspapers were dying, mm-hmm. that people weren't reading newspapers, and and at, you know at the time I was still very young. I don't think I'm that old now, but I'm thinking to myself, geez, what am I going to do here? And, I, and I'm thinking, I need an exit plan. And again, a person who believes there's no such thing as coincidence, within two days, I get a phone call out of the clear blue sky from the editor of, of AOL Sports, who said that they were wanted to increase their sports presence, and they wanted to know if I wanted to be uh, one of their national columnists for the internet. And I was like, uh, wow, this is matter from heaven right here. And then two days after that, the AJC announced buyouts for people 55 and older. And I was right at 55. It was like, I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> it was perfect. So, yeah. So I left. <laughs> and, and, and the reason I'm, I'm saying this to, to you, Kobe and Nee, is that when I made that decision, people thought I was at, they thought I had lost my mind. I mean, I had won all these national and local and state awards and newspapers, and the internet wasn't what it is now. But I just took a chance, and my, my thought process was I do I would do internet and television, and lo and behold, you know, again doing the math, fifteen years later, that's what I've been doing, and now I got many of my colleagues saying that, wow, I wish I would have done what you did, and way back when, but I, I showed that as an example of how the sports media has changed, and then you talk about uh, the not only sports media but sports in general, it's the same thing. If you if you just want to get stay stuck in the past, you're going to be lost in the past. And I and I give you one of the quickest evolutions for me that's taking place right now. I was one of the the longest traditionalist old heads in the history of sports when it came to anything, but particularly when it comes to baseball. I don't want no don't don't put lights in Wrigley Field. Don't don't tear out the ivy. Don't do any of that stuff here. Okay. okay. Yeah. Now now jumping ahead. The, this coming season, the Major League Baseball, they're making the bases larger. They're 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 uh, restricting the shift, and they got a pitch clock. And I'm like, yes, I love it. It's great. Okay, ten years ago, twenty years ago, I would have been like, are you crazy? But again, the times dictate those changes. And for the most part, I think the changes in sports have been on the good. There's been something that has not been good. Like a lot of changes in the National Football League that's made the game not so enjoyable. But for the most part, the changes have been for the better. Yeah, I hear that. And I know exactly what you're talking about when it comes to the NFL. Yes. Yeah, I think we'll, we're definitely <laughs> going to come back to that. Don't you worry. Hold that thought. But um, just on baseball, you, if I'm not mistaken, you're a, a voter in the Hall of Fame each sure, year, right? I am. Yeah. Matter of fact, I'm the longest uh, voting African-American in the history of Major League Baseball for Baseball Hall of Famers and only the second in the history of Major League Baseball African-American ever to vote for Baseball Hall of Famers. Wow. That's awesome. Now, Scott Rowland was inducted this year. I got to ask, you, you mentioned the name before. Are we going to see Pete Rose into the hole anytime soon or is that is that a no-go? Uh, I would say, unfortunately, it's a no-go. Uh, again, I'm talking about looking at posters. I'm looking at a poster right now of Pete Rose. I got two posters when I was 12 years old at the same time, one of Pete Rose and one of Hank Aaron. Those are my two favorite players. 
So, you know, as I say, full disclosure, I grew up as a diehard Pete Rose fan. And after getting a chance to know him personally and some of the things he's done for me, I'm really a diehard Pete Rose fan. So, yes, I, I, I'm a little biased. And, and also, what's interesting, and I've written about this, in the beginning, I was against Pete Rose being in the Hall of Fame because I am a strict constructionist when it comes to the Hall of Fame because the only basic rule that they tell us is that you must consider integrity and character. And when Rose was on his long streak when he was basically lying about betting on baseball, which he did, my thing was I could not vote for him because of that. But he's since many years ago has come clean on that subject. Now, here's why I'm pessimistic. We as writers, we are no longer eligible to vote for Pete Rose for the Hall of Fame because he was banned from the writer's ballot, so to speak, a mm. long time ago. So, so we were out of the picture for decades. So the only way Pete Rose can make the Hall of Fame now, he's got to be voted in by something called the Veterans Committee. It's got a different name now, but essentially the Veterans Committee that consists of former Major League players, Major League executives, and maybe like one or two media type guys. And for the most part, many of Rose's peers strongly dislike him because of the gambling thing, which is so ironic given all the gambling that's in sports. We'll probably talk about that at some point. But anyway, yeah. mm-hmm. because, but because of that hatred of his peers, ironically, that's what's going to keep him out of there. And I'll tell you a little inside baseball here, so to speak. Uh, I was a backup writer on the Bigger Red Machine back in the 70s. That was one of the first beats I had coming out of college. And I look back on my life and I'm just like, look at something like that. And it's like, what well, talking about, <laughs> I just can't believe I was so fortunate to be the backup writer for a major, news, major newspaper for the greatest team of all time, for the team I grew up, I mean, loving. And I mentioned that covering the Reds, I knew who liked who, who hated who, and what have you. And, and for the listeners, they probably know that that team consisted of four Hall of Famers and uh, four and a half Hall of Famers. You had uh, Johnny Bench, Joe Morgan, Tony Perez, uh, Sparky Anderson as a manager, the half being Pete Rose. He should be in the Hall of Fame. But on that big red machine in the 70s, Johnny Bench, the catcher, the greatest catcher of all time, strongly disliked Pete Rose. And, I, and I'm just trying to be kind. And, and, and the feeling was kind of mutual, to be honest with you. Johnny Bench is one of the prominent persons or has been on that veterans committee. So you can see where this thing is going. Mm. And uh, and not just the Johnny Bench, but there's other players who, uh, for whatever reason, didn't like uh, Pete Rose. And it goes beyond Pete Rose. And here's the thing that people talking about, uh, you know, objective journalism or objective this or that, everybody is subjective. And so when you start talking about these voting entities, for most valuable player, Hall of Fame, not just baseball, any sport, probably what the public doesn't realize, and, and they would if they really think about it, everybody's got a bias. Everybody. And, 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 the, and all these former players, they've got biases for and against certain guys. And it's a long-winded way to say, I, that's why I'm very pessimistic about Pete Rose, because there's a lot of guys former players, executives who are still fuming over Rose and the betting thing. And one other quick thing about this, Bart Giamatti is a guy that banned uh, Rose from baseball. And within a week or two after Bart Giamatti banned Rose from baseball back in 1986, I want to know, 1989, actually, Bart Giamatti died. And there's still a lot of people in baseball 
who blame Pete Rose in their minds for killing Bar Giamatti. What? Because of the public backlash? Well, they just feel that he, they, he put so much pressure on Giamatti, they'd had a heart attack and died. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm not saying it's rational. I'm just saying that that's what the feeling is with many circles. And one of, one of the guys who was, who was big in that is Bud Seeley. Bud Seeley, the commissioner, former commissioner of baseball, former owner of the Milwaukee Brewers, Bud Seeley was very close to Bart Giamatti. And Bud never forgave Pete Rose for Bart Giamatti's death. Mm-hmm. Now, you've touched on Bud Seeley here, and you, you also mentioned that he's the owner of the Brewers. You covered a number of teams in the National League. Yeah, should the Brewers have moved leagues, and should the Astros have moved from the National League to the American League, considering what has happened since? Well, here, here, now here's <laughs> now this, I'm going to contradict myself here for a moment. Here's where I am still that that old fashioned baseball traditionalist. I, I here it is. I don't know how many years later. I still cannot get used to the fact that the Houston Astros are not in the National League. And Thank there's you. not a time that I got to think to myself, oh wait a minute, okay, they are they're not in the National League anymore, or the Milwaukee Brewers. We moved to Milwaukee. My family, again, my dad was at AT&T supervisor, so he got transferred from South Bend, Indiana, to Cincinnati, to Chicago, and then to Milwaukee in 72. Then when we moved to Milwaukee, the Brewers were in their second year, see, 77, third year in Milwaukee. They, had, they started out in Seattle in 69, moved to Milwaukee in 1970, and uh, they were an American League team. And so that's how I think of the Brewers as an American League team, always. So yeah, it's just hard to wrap your my head around that. But I want to tell you something even <laughs> that even goes even deeper than that. And I get this is this is a product of being old, I guess. But <laughs> I'm still old enough to remember when I was growing up, there was a National Football League and an American Football League, mm-hmm. and they did not merge until 1970. And there were certain teams that were in the old National Football League. And as opposed to American Football League, and I and I still think in those terms sometimes. You know, like when I think about certain teams, they're like, you know, like what are they doing? Just like for instance, like the the Baltimore Colts. The Baltimore Colts were one of the traditional teams of the National Football League, and but they but now since the merger, they they are in the AFC, which is essentially the old AFL. I still can't get used to that, and that's here we are, like more than fifty years later. So I need to get over that. I need therapy. I need to get over that. <laughs> <laughs> this is your this is your uh, therapeutic couch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we we mentioned gambling. It got brought up because of the Pete Rose situation. But like you said, it's kind of ironic now because gambling has become such a huge part of sports. I would say at one point, and you would have seen this, gambling served as a a medium to enhance sports, but now it's reached a point where it's almost like the sport is there to serve the gambling. How, how yeah. do you feel about that situation? Oh, no doubt about it. And I, I just think it's a, it's a ticking time bomb. I mean, I don't think we have seen something, and I don't know what it is, but there is a bombshell out there about to happen that that, that people are going to say, oh, my goodness. I mean, of course. there There is no feasible way that all these sports leagues can be this heavy into to gambling without a disaster. And what I mean, I'm just, just not to wish anything bad on anybody, but I mean, there's this thing called bookies out there. Okay, mm-hmm. you got these players, and they and they're involved in these games, and 
they have the control of the point spread and all this in in their in their, in their well being and what have you. It just only takes, and, and and again, I'll backtrack and say we don't even know as we speak how bad it is because there's no doubt in my mind that there's a lot of shady things going on right now involving players and bookies and owners and general managers, probably sports writers, all of the above. And and it's only going to take one or two of these huge things to come out before people say, what did we create here? But the problem is going to be is there's going to be nothing anybody can do about it at this point. Sign up to SoRare, the ultimate fantasy sports NFT platform. Scout, collect, and trade officially licensed digital player cards with other fans in our open marketplace. Create teams with cards from your collection and earn points based on your players' real-life performances to compete in a variety of fantasy sports competitions. SoRare is a game that you can play this season and the next and the next and the next. It's almost like a dynasty spin on fantasy. It's available in formats such as NBA, MLB, and also football, the world game. So what are you waiting for? Get involved, get in the game, get some cards, and have some fun. Oh, did I tell you it's free, by the way? Yes. All you have to do is sign up, create an account, and then you can start playing. And if you want to go a little bit harder and purchase some limited, rare, or unique cards, can do that too but at a base level this is really just a free fun way to play with your mates and show who's really in the know when it comes to sports because process podcasters we know our thing but so rare is a chance to go up against us and see who really is the smartest in the room so hit the link in the show notes and we'll see you on so rare own your game how do you feel about the nil being developed for college players i think it's straight from the devil uh, I, you know, and, and I said this, and I'm not, not saying this in hindsight. I've been on this on this bandwagon against paying athletes in any form forever. And uh, uh, matter of fact, one of the reasons I did a lot of uh, ESPN outside the lines back in the old days, I was always the singular person on the other side about how this was a great evil, how it's going to ruin intercollegiate athletics, and and now we're seeing. What is happening? I mean, it is, uh, and here's where the contradiction comes in. Was it inevitable? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. It was inevitable because if you take these things to court, and what I mean, if you're a college player and you take it to the court, extreme, extreme of the, the law, Supreme Court, what have you, you're going to win because they got to get paid. Okay. The short version. But how does it affect collegiate sports the way that we've envisioned it for the last 30, 40, 50 years, huge. And the ways that we're seeing, seeing is only going to get worse because the rich are going to get richer, needless to say, and everybody else is going to be left to defend for themselves and not in a good way. And, and there's already a problem right now and throughout all sports, college being one of them, with attendance because people are not going to games anymore. That, and that's across the board, not like they used to before. They're watching it on television and that, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So now you're giving p- people, and just it from a college standpoint, even more excuses not to go to, say, my alma mater, Miami, Ohio, Mid-American Conference, to go watch a game, Miami, Ohio, against Kent State. Why watch that when you're going to have sub- subpar players, when you can go watch Alabama play Notre Dame, where 60% of the roster 
there's like pro guys. So that that's what I have against NILs. Do you see light at the end of the tunnel or no? No, no. That, well, the, the light at the end of the tunnel, the old cliche is a, is a train, a very large train, and it's going to flatten everybody on the tracks. Yeah, no, I hear it. I hear it. Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely evolving rapidly. But um, just to touch on betting, Imagine if Tim Donahue was refereeing in the NBA oh, in, the, in today's <laughs> in 2023. My there you go. Word. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, but see, but, but here's the thing, though. I mean, who's to say that is not happening? That's that's my point. That I, I believe that there's all these guys out there. There's all kind of horror stories happening right now that just have not gotten out there yet. And let me tell you, to your your listeners, a little dirty little secret. And this is what I tell my class all the time. We, as journalists, we only write about, I'd say, about 40% of what we know. And I know people are there like gasping. You're like, and, I, and, and, and the 60% that we protect is not necessarily for sinister reasons. There's all kinds of reasons why you can't write everything that you know, okay? One, protecting sources. You can't get things verified from various sources. So there's no doubt in my mind, even beyond media people, that people know that there's some bad stuff that's already going on right now with these referees. Cause we, I forgot about the referees and the umpires. Oh, it's going on. Okay. And then it's just a matter of when, not if, a matter of when something gets exposed. Yes, indeed. And, uh, I'm sure you'll be writing about it. I can imagine you writing a book about that. You go to, you go to so many book ideas, but yeah. <laughs> Terry, take us back to the original. The, the real Hank Aaron. Tell listeners about that because I'm talking to you right now and I have a bowl sign by Hank Aaron. And for me personally, he's my home run king. I, I get that Barry Bonds has since broken the record. <laughs> Maybe someone else will get past <laughs> that, but Hank Aaron is still my home run leader. And for what he went through to get to where he got to, he blazed a trail for Bonds and others. But tell us about the book that you wrote on him. I second that, by the way, Nee. Well, mm -hmm. uh, and again, I'm biased on this, but people are going to have to trust me on this. I, I think that if anybody that out there who is even remotely a, uh, a sports fan, and even if you're not a sports fan, if you're remotely a history fan, okay, this is a must-read book, The Real Hank Aaron, and, 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 and an intimate look at the life and legacy of the Home Run King. That's the official name of the book. And the reason this is must read for so many reasons, everybody who has read this book, and particularly people who are, who are, who are close to Hank, say the same, even people who are close to Hank, they say the same thing, and that is, wow, this is not what I expected, okay? Because it's not a baseball book per se, it's not a sports book per se, it's something totally different. And I'm going to walk you through the kind of like the two or three themes of this book that make, make it totally different. All right, how this book came about. Hank, again, this is a miracle. I went from the, a 12-year-old boy who used his uh, allowance money to buy a poster of Hank Aaron, which I still have on this, my wall right here today, to being an honorary pallbearer at his funeral in January of 2021. And in between that time, I developed this amazing relationship with him over 40 years, which was all part of the book. And the book came about in the summer of 2020. Hank died in January of 2021. And I'm talking to Hank, and Hank is saying, saying that, you know, he said, out of all the movies made of me, 
out of all the books written about me, and there's been several, out of all the articles written about me, he said that there's still a whole lot of things missing. And I said, you know what, Hank? I said, 95% of it's missing because nobody knows you like I know you. And then Hank says, we need to write a book. And I said, yes, we do. <laughs> and so unfortunately, he died a few months later, but I was still good because one of the things I started doing, besides the fact I had all these stories that just pertain to me and Hank that nobody knew about, or I knew a lot of stuff about Hank that nobody didn't know about. In the early, 19, the early 1990s, I began saving my interviews with Hank Aaron. And I got them all. And so I've had, you know, in just pristine uh, condition. As a matter of fact, one of the things I'm doing right now is a project where uh, I'm turning a lot of these into uh, sound bites that people can buy, you know, sort of like an NFT type thing, but it's kind of like a beyond the NFT type of, type of deal. But there's going to be more of that coming out later on. But anyway, so, the, so I was able to, to do this book. And the book is uh, basically about the symmetry between Hank Aaron's idol, Jackie Robinson, myself, which I just told you guys about, and Hank Aaron. And one of the reasons that Hank Aaron and I were so close, Hank sounds, saw so many parallels between my life and his life as far as being a trailblazing and a, a person in baseball for him, me being a trailblazer as in sports journalism, and of course, Jackie Robinson being a trailblazer. And... So it's about that. And it's also about how Hank Aaron helped me through a really uh, uh, awful period I had, 25 years at Atlanta Journal-Constitution being the first black sports columnist in the history of the South, meaning I was the first black person in the history of the South allowed us to give his opinion. To say there were horror stories is all in the book. That's another statement. And one of the persons that helped me through that period was Hank Aaron. So that's in the book. And then the other part of the book, is all these revelations involving Hank and, ba and Barry Bonds, Hank and the Braves, not so much when he was a player, but what people forget, he was uh, one of the first, actually the, only the second black executive in history of Major League Baseball. Mm -hmm. And there are horror stories there about him with his own colleagues with the Braves that have never been told before. That's all in the book. So the book is, is about all these fresh things that nobody ever knew. That's... Yeah, that, that that definitely sounds like a must-read, and uh, yeah, I'm going to have to get my hands on a copy of that. Yeah, you had mentioned how you felt the NFL is a, a different sport now because of the introduction of a number of new rules that were <laughs> yeah. implemented. So, I'm a fan of the rough-and-tough gridiron NFL, so I, I am not as much a fan of it now as I used to be. I do understand why it went that way, and... I want your opinion on this. I feel like sports, like major sports promotions, because of the ease of uh, like accessibility to any sport now, that they are no longer just competing with similar sports. They're competing with all sports. So I've, I feel like leagues like the NFL, MLB, now you have, say, the MLS, but they're looking for ways to make their sport a little more attractive to the average fan as opposed to the diehard fan because it's so easy to watch any sport now. How do you feel about that? I can see a little bit of that. I think that National Football League is at, at a whole different level, though. I mean, I mean, let's face it. Next to the United States of America, the United States government, the most powerful entity on the face of the earth is the National Football League. I mean, <laughs> 
They're just so powerful. It's just, I mean, they made $18 billion, a record $18 billion last year. Think about that. Okay, that was last year. God knows what they made this year. So I think they're in a little bit different category, but you just said something that, that I really like about how the rough and tumble uh, NFL, and I'm going to say this in a couple of ways. And, and, I, and I, I think that this new NFL, for those of us who remember the old NFL, uh, is a terrible product. And the reason they get away with it is because, again, they're so powerful and such, such a monster that it's hard to go in any other way. But anyway, 45 years ago, and I'm covering the Oakland Raiders. This is in the early 80s. Uh, and this was a legendary team. Al Davis was the owner. Tom Flores was the coach at the time. And Don Matuzak and Art Shell. And I mean, back in those days, uh, they used to practice. They had training camp. They had what they call two-a-days. Mm-hmm. Each of the two-a-day practices lasted no less than three hours. Three hours in the morning, three hours at night. And they would just like knock each other's blankety blank off, okay? <laughs> Throughout those three, that, that entire period. And then during the regular season, it's the same thing. Unbeknownst to probably the average NFL fan nowadays, and I, I mean this almost literally, now NFL teams don't really practice. For those who, who have not been to a training camp lately, you're going to be very, very bored. <laughs> there's a lot of standing around. There's a lot of looking at clipboards. Or there's a lot of, you know, and what they call scrimmages aren't really scrimmages. They're, they're controlled scrimmages where the hitting is very, you know, polite. And once the season begins, there's virtually no practices. It's, it's basically just meetings. They're just basically meeting out there, having long meetings and, and, and as a matter of fact, they are not allowed to hit except for a certain amount of time. Now, the reason I'm bringing all this up is this has affected the quality of play. And this is one of the reasons why if you look at the quality of play now compared to like 30, 40 years ago, totally different. Why? Because as Dan Reeves used to tell me, Dan Reeves, former coach of the Atlanta Falcons and, and, a, and a guy that uh, was a great player back in the day for the Dallas Cowboys, that if you don't practice – you're not going to be able to perform out on the field at a high level. And that's one of the things that's happening. Now, part of it is, this kind of ties into what I'm saying about NILs, that the NILs were inevitable. Partly what's happening with the National Football League was also inevitable. And people probably know where I'm going right here. Concussions. Mm -hmm. Once the concussions became a big thing, and you had former players start dropping like flies, which they did, and start suing the National Football League, you know, it's all about money, then that's when the NFL started huddling more with the Players Association, and all these rules start coming into play about you can only hit so many times during training camp. You can only practice so long during training camp. You can't practice at all during the regular season except on Tuesdays. I'm just making that up. I mean, that's something like that. And it's all kind of a byproduct of that, but in my humble opinion, they went overboard. When I say they, I'm talking about the National Football League, the players, to give us more of a sanitized version of what we're seeing right now. And it's not good. Now, the NFL isn't the only league to do it. The NBA has done a similar thing in, in a number of situations. What I wanted to follow up with is, do you believe that records being broken now should really count against the previous generation, say, previous to year 2000? Oh, gosh. Again, you bring it up. Take back everything I said about 20 minutes ago. I am still a traditionalist. You you, you just proved it. You you hit one of my pet peeves. No, 
emphatically. One of the things that's driving me absolutely nuts, and I've yet to write about this yet, because I know that when I write about it, oh heck's gonna break loose. <laughs> and, and, and this this is not not why I've not written about it. I just haven't gotten hadn't gotten around to it. But I think one of the most overrated things that has happened the last few weeks is all of this this attention put on LeBron James breaking the all-time mm-hmm. scoring record in the NBA. I mean, really? Like, okay, let's look at this thing here. The NBA did not have the three-point shot until 1979. So in, in my humble opinion, everything prior to 1979 or afterwards deserves an asterisk. It's not the same game. I mean, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who held the previous record, only shot one three-pointer, and he, he made it. You know, he made, he made, well, he may have shot more, more, but he only made one three-pointer. But the f- point of the matter is, he never played it during that era, for the most part, that LeBron played in. Now, I know the devil's advocate is saying that, well, well you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wasn't a three-point shooter. Well, yeah, but there were a whole lot of guys who were pre-1979. The one guy that I always think of that gets highly overlooked is a guy by the name of John Havlicek. Some of your listeners probably heard of John Havlicek. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Boston Celtics. I think this guy was amazing. This guy was shooting three pointers when there was no three point line. I mean, he was certainly, I, God knows how many points he, the guy would have had. So no, I, I, I really think that that is bad. And that's one reason I like baseball, uh, when it comes to records rather over the other sports, because no doubt baseball is not the same game as it was even 30 years ago, or certainly not 50 years ago when you had the designated hitter coming to play in 1973, but it's still, you can, you still can kind of like make the records work better mm-hmm. than these other sports. Football, not at all. Basketball, definitely not at all. Uh, but no, no, yeah, yeah. You, I think you're right. You're, you're onto something there. Yeah, no, I, I, I think along the exact same lines as you when it comes to a number of those situations. I said my piece about the LeBron situation on, on social media and I got a lot of, <laughs> a lot of pushback on it, but I don't care because I see it the exact same way that you cannot compare a different game and use the same records. No, mm-hmm. not a, but, but you know, before you continue, I'll tell you my all time favorite NBA player is Oscar Robertson. I'm a huge yes. Oscar Robertson fan. I mean, even to this day, if you watch ESPN Sports Center uh, during the NBA season, there's almost not a time when they'll say that somebody just broke the record of Oscar Robertson. I mean, here it is like all, the guy in place is like 1975, 76, and he was a three point shooter back, back in the day, but Who's to say if they didn't have a three-point uh, line that he would have altered his game to be a three-point shooter? Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the thing. You, you can't, it's comparing apples with oranges. Like, we have to apply that context when we look at some of these records being broken. And by the way, LeBron lost that game. So, is that too late? <laughs> exactly. like, he, he forced himself out there, injured himself <laughs> in the process. He scores his 36 points. And they still lose. And and that could cost them from getting to the play and let alone the playoffs. But anyway, he has the record. Um, I, I'm, I'm with you 100%. <laughs> it is what it is. Now, you're in the ATL. We've just had a coaching change at the Hawks. What are we going to see going forward with them? Are we going to see – because, like, I don't know about you. Maybe it's just the way I've been seeing it, but it seems like Trey Young has been playing a little bit within himself this season. Are we going to see the Hawks go to another level now, or is this the beginning of the a teardown, maybe? Well, you know, I'm going to give you the big picture here. Uh, and I was over there today. They had a press conference announcing officially that uh, Nate McMillan was no longer there. 
the general manager was available uh, and, and some of the players were available. And I mentioned this for a reason. The big story here, and I'm writing about for Forbes in the next couple of days, is Trey Young, the star of the Hawks, is getting a reputation of being a coach killer. And uh, this is the second. Mm-hmm. You know, Trey Young is four, 24 years old, fifth year in the league. Couldn't get get along with uh, Lloyd Pierce's first coach. Okay, and got him whacked. Okay, and then Nate McMillan, veteran coach who's uh, had a, a sterling record, takes over for Lloyd Pierce uh, three years ago uh, in March and leads them into the Eastern Conference Finals. And then uh, uh, they struggled the next two years. Not so much Nate McMillan's fault. It's just this roster is they've got talent, but it's just not a good mix. And uh, and he and Trey got into it uh, a couple of times during the season. And not so uh, surprisingly, Nate McMillan gets whacked, okay? And so today at the press gathering, all the players that we requested was available to talk about this, except for one, Trey Young, who who the PR guy said that he had the boogie, whatever that means, okay? <laughs> In other words, he didn't want to answer questions about whatever, what, what I was going to ask him and everybody else is that, were you responsible for Nate McMillan getting whacked? Now, the reason I'm saying, I'm saying this is a bigger picture, we're moving into a, a different era now when it comes to the NBA, sports in general, but it, the NBA, and that is how much power these players have. And I know a lot of people out there are going to say, well, what about Magic Johnson? Okay, yeah, well, Magic Johnson was an outlier 40, well, I guess 50 years ago when uh, he was with the Lakers and he didn't like his coach at the time, Paul Westhead, I think that's what what's the name of the guy. And got him whacked, and then they brought in some guy named Pat Riley. I guess that turned out pretty well. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but I think we're going to see a wave of what's happening here in Atlanta where these star players are, you know, and, and again, it's always been in the case that the ownership is always going to side with the player more than the owner, uh, than the than the manager or the coach anyway. But I, I just think this opened up a can of worms because, because since what the Hawks have said is that, Trey, you know, we're going to, we want to keep you happy. And blah blah blah, and I point blank asked uh, Landry Fields, the general manager. I asked a third question in this press conference. I said that was the reason Nate McMillan was fired. How much of an input did Trey Young have in, the, in, in this matter? And of course, the general manager said, "Oh no, this was all my decision," and so on and so forth. I'm not necessarily buying that, but again, I just think that with so much money that's out there in sports nowadays, particularly in the NBA and other sports. We're going to see more and more of this where the player is kind of kind of dictates who he wants in charge. Oh, absolutely. I mean, on social media, LeBron's nickname is LeGM because if he doesn't <laughs> right. like the way things are going, he'll mm-hmm. just arrange for, you know, Rob Polinka to trade a player away or, you know, if the coach isn't doing the right X's and O's to his liking, that guy's gone too. So maybe Trey's taking a lead from that. I don't know, but it is interesting. But, but here, here's the thing, not to cut you off. LeBron, I'll give someone of a pass because it's LeBron, okay? Trey Young is, he's good, but he's not LeBron. Trey Young has got no business dictating terms. None. Zero. Zilch. I mean, but LeBron, I mean, the guy's got a few rings, right? So yeah. Give him a pass. Give him a pass. I hear that. I hear that. There is one place where Trey Young dictates terms, and that's MSG. <laughs> Other than that, I, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, right. I hear exactly what you're saying. Kobe? <laughs> Yeah, Terrence, where do people find you on social media? Well, they go T-More Sports at T-More Sports for Twitter. And, and, and by the way, a couple of things here. I'm, I'm also a – I run this YouTube channel 
called Atlanta Sports Unlimited, where you get the great uh, sports coverage, Atlanta sports teams. And I do this video, uh, kind of a quirky video, and it's never more than about three or four minutes about different things. People need to check it out, but make sure you, you go to that and subscribe. Atlanta Sports Unlimited, ASU, and uh, I think you'll know, have a lot of fun with that. And then I've got various things such as Terrence Mathis, the former star of the Atlanta Falcons. He's got his own show on my YouTube channel, uh, but that's very enjoyable. And then um, the book, The Real Hank Aaron. If you go to www.therealhankaaron, that's all one word, www.therealhankaaron.com, you can purchase the book from that website, and I will personally sign it. And you just tell me how you want me to sign it, and I will do that for you. Right on. And in your mind, who's the biggest star in Atlanta right now? That's a good question. And, uh, you know, you can make a case, and I'm just going to give you the big three, and actually the big two now. It's either Trey Young or Ronald Acuna, and they're both flawed, okay? We already talked about Trey Young. Ronald Acuna, for people who don't know, he's a right fielder for the uh, Atlanta Braves. And I do a show, like I said, every Sunday night on the – on uh, here for the ABC affiliate. So I guess people might think that I'm, I'm the Ronald Acuna hater. I don't hate Ronald Acuna. I just tell the truth about Ronald Acuna. Here's my issue with Ronald Acuna. Does he have talent? Yes. He's one of the most talented players in Major League Baseball, okay? But one issue I have with the Braves, and I, I very much like their management and their ownership, is they're, they are not putting him in line with uh, – as far as just being just little too showboating, flashy, what have you. And I think that's part of the reason why he gets hurt an awful lot. He's injury prone to begin with. But a lot of times he gets hurt because he's, he's trying to do all this jazzy stuff instead of just playing baseball. There, there's old timer in me coming out again. Mm-hmm. Just play the game, all right? We don't need all this other stuff, Okay. And, and whenever he just does all this other stuff, it seems like it, 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 it does not end up in a, in a good way. But if he would just play the game and, and leave all this other stuff out, he would clearly be, uh, to me, uh, you know, one of the five best players in baseball. Right now, he's just one of the best players in baseball. But to answer your question, I would say probably Ronald Acuna, Trey Young would be a tie. Okay. Ah, uh, that's... Yeah, I I might I was thinking about getting Ronald Acuna on my fantasy team, but you've given me some pause. So I might have to rethink that one. He's always hurt. There's always something. It's a it's a back. It's a knee. It's a finger. It's so, there's always something. Right. Yeah. That's um. That's not great. Now, when I think of Atlanta, I think of sports, but I also think of wings. Oh. <laughs> is it, I keep hearing about this Magic City, man. I, I'm not going to comment too much on what they do at Magic City, but are the wings really that good? Well, people are think this is a cop-out, but for me, I, I, one of the other many things I do, I'm also a Sunday school teacher, so I have, I have never been to Magic City, <laughs> to be honest with you. But uh, for what people tell me, I know people say, well, yeah, right. For what people tell me, the wings actually are pretty good besides what else they do there. Uh, Lou Williams, who was a, a uh, point guard for the uh, – not wasn't Lou Williams. I can't remember. The, was it Lou Williams? I think it was Lou Williams. One, one, of, the, one of the former – well, you know, I don't want to uh, muddy his name. But I'll just say there was a former <laughs> Atlanta Hawks mm-hmm. player who came here who uh, was famous for being caught at Magic City. And he said that the only reason he was there was because of the wings. 
whoever that was. <laughs> mm. <laughs> well, I recall that. Yeah, I, I, I recall that story. Um, yeah. <laughs> but all good, all good. No, I, I just thought I'm, I always hear about Magic City Wings. Anyway, um, you've been to Canada, right? You would have come up here in 92 and I I'm have, sure you've yeah. been up since. Yep. Uh, you ever had a Putin before? That sounds familiar. And as soon as you tell me, I'm going to say probably yes. Because I heard that. To tell me what that is. So it's it's fries, uh, cheese curds, and gravy. That's that's a, as a base, and then you can get different flavors as well. Some people add meat, and you can add different things. So those three elements are the foundation of this dish, which originated from Quebec. That doesn't sound familiar, but but I'll tell you about my Canadian experience, and I'm getting chills just thinking about this. Like last time I was in Canada, 1992 uh, World Series. Blue Jays against uh, against the, the the Atlanta Braves, of course, of course. But even before that, I remember I, I remember this like it was yesterday. The first time I ever went to Canada, I was covering the San Francisco Giants back in the eighties, and this was back when the Montreal Expo still existed. Mm-hmm. And and I remember going to Montreal. That was one of the most thrilling times of my entire life. I just loved it. I loved the the city. I loved the people. I loved the the food. It was all great. The stadium, not so much, but everything else was just great. I mean, it was just and just the, the public transportation. It was just and, and it was just, just lovely. And so it broke my heart when the uh, when the Expos left there. I mean, because that, that was like a great trip every single time. But particularly when somebody else was paying for it, you know how that goes. And then Toronto mm-hmm. was the same way. I mean, Toronto was just a just a wonderful city. I just thought it was so great. And and when I was there in 1992, I'm thinking to myself, boy, I'll be coming here quite often. And I haven't been there in uh, 50 years, 30, 40 years, I guess. Whatever that, the math is, 30 years, I guess. But uh, I, I loved it. Just totally loved it. Great to hear that you loved it. And I feel like one of the reasons why you didn't get back for baseball reasons is because of the 94 lockout. Now, the Braves were able to navigate around that. They, they remained pretty competitive afterwards. But baseball in Canada, you mentioned the Expos. They, they dwindled. They, they're no longer with us. They're now in Washington. And then the Blue Jays never really reached those heights again. How impactful was the 94 lockout on baseball in general, in your opinion? Oh, you know, listen, I know people to this day who have said they have not followed baseball because of that. That killed the soul of Major League Baseball, that season and not having the World Series. So, no, yeah, there's no doubt about that because, I mean, just think of how the game was peaking up to that point. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and particularly, like, you talk about Canada, like the Montreal Expos in 93, they had the best record in baseball, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and, and that gets ruined in the picture. And then, like I say, that's the heyday of the Blue Jays. Uh, going backwards, by the way, I'm just sitting here thinking, like I told you before, I'm kind of like the Forrest Gump of sports writers. A friend told me, I was there in, in Toronto, and you guys can help me with when this was. So maybe, I think this was after 92, when uh, Jose Canseco, Hit the monster home run in the upper deck. Ah, yeah, was that ninety four? I want to say, yeah, yeah, ninety three or nine, maybe ninety three or ninety somewhere in that vicinity. But but here's the thing: here's the story behind that because it was, it was American League playoffs. Might have been the ALCS, but um, that was one of the first years Major League Baseball started putting the media in all sorts of weird places in the auxiliary boxes. And for the fans who don't know. Uh, at a major event like a World Series or like uh, uh, that sort of thing, you got all these national writers that come to town, and you can only get so many people in the in the main press box. 
And so they would put they put the rest of us, columnists and the such, which is like 90% of the media, in the auxiliary box. And in the beginning, the auxiliary box would be like right underneath the, the press box or very close. And as the years went on, they started getting more and more <laughs> fancy with it and started putting us further and further away, thinking in terms of we need to have to save these other seats for uh, people who are going to give us a lot of money, and that's mm-hmm. sports writers. So somehow the auxiliary box was at the, at the Toronto Blue Jays Stadium in the in the Sky Dome. They called it Sky Dome back then. It was in beyond the left field wall, and we were just bitching and moaning about this. Why they're putting us way out here? Well, the good thing the thing was I was out there for history because when Jose Canseco hit that home run, he hit it over our heads. Up in the upper Uh-oh. deck, and that is by far the longest home run I've ever seen in my life, and and it could be it could have been the longest home run I ever hit ever. But uh, that there that was my last time in, in in Toronto. Come think of it. Oh well, you definitely have to get back up here. It's um, it's changed a little bit since you came, but it's I'm sure it's changed for the better. Now, did you have fun today, Terry, with us? Oh, you know, I liked this because it was very, it was moving, and there were so many different subjects and. It was tremendous. Loved it. Excellent. Because we'd love to have you back on in the future. There's so much more that we want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, we, can, we <laughs> can keep going, but we want to keep it within a decent length of time. But it was amazing <laughs> talking to you, Terry. Well, I certainly appreciate that. And just for the record, I know you said Johnny Bench was your number one catcher, and most people would agree with you. But for me, and you, we, we mentioned the team, but it's Gary Carter. You know, Gary Carter was a good friend of mine. And uh, he was just such a nice Man, and I want to tell you, and I'm just thinking off the top of my head. There's just so many. He's in my top 50 all-time favorite baseball players to talk to. And 50 sounds like a lot, but it's not really a lot for somebody that's covered baseball longer than I have. I mean, because he was just always just so, always had a smile on his face, always mm-hmm. just accommodating, always willing to uh, be there for an interview. And, and like I say, just I think of him, and I I just had a smile on my face as soon as he mentioned his name. All right, thank you for your time. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. For even more of your favorite sports content, be sure to visit the website www.prosportspodcasters.com. On our website, you will find our sports blog, full podcast library, access to our YouTube channel, and deals from our affiliate partners. You can also sign up to become a PSP Insider and get exclusive access to our insider tips, sponsor giveaways, and insider newsletter. So don't miss out on the full Pro Sports Podcasters experience where no sport is left behind.